You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. People are beginning to wake up to the downside of the tech world. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We need to find ways to share this wealth so that people aren't suffering on the streets. You're giving your time to help others, and in the process, it helps you as well. The more people who see what happens over in the courthouse and know what's really going on, people would really be horrified. This is KCBS. In depth. It's been a long, slow journey, but it's looking a lot like the Bay Area has indeed managed to bend the curve on this pandemic. The question is now, though, what's going to happen as we begin to reopen? I'm Keith Benconi. This is KCBS In Depth. And today in the program, well, we've discussed before all the work that public health officials have been carrying out to step up preparedness during the lockdown. But the real test of that work comes now, as we see whether or not these two months stuck at home really did buy us more safety, or if instead they just bought us more time. For some perspective on what to expect, we're going to welcome onto the program now two infectious disease experts who have been monitoring all this closely. First, returning to the program, Dr. John Schwartzberg, Emeritus Professor of Public Health at UC Berkeley's Division of Infectious Disease. Dr. Schwartzberg, welcome to KCBS In-Depth once again. Thank you, Keith. It's good to be back with you. And next up, bringing some national perspective, welcoming on as well, Dr. Amesh Adalja. He's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Adalja, welcome to you as well. Thanks for having me. So just to set the stage a bit for this conversation, at this point, all Bay Area counties are relaxing their lockdown orders, some more slowly than others. Santa Clara County, for example, where I live, has been just about the slowest. But this week, officials did announce they would join with other Bay Area counties and began allowing retailers to offer curbside pickup. Uh, explaining her county's more cautious approach, Health Officer Dr. Sarah Cody, uh, one of the most prominent faces of the Bay Area's COVID response, had this to say. The truth is that the conditions on the ground have not changed. We have a population that is susceptible to COVID-19 and we don't have a vaccine. But while we are still lacking on treatments, we have other ways of preparing for outbreaks from expanding hospital capacity to securing more protective equipment to standing up testing and tracing programs. So our goal here is to go slowly and to stand up the infrastructure so that one, we can detect if there's increase in transmission and two, we can do something about it. For all this progress, though, health officials will be the first to tell you that a lot of these measures, testing, tracing, PPE, we are still not where we want to be. In some cases, not by a long shot. So that's where I want to start this conversation, Dr. John Schwartzberg, again with UC Berkeley. Help give us a sense of how close we're getting to meeting the levels of preparedness that we want to see to open up safely here in the Bay Area. Sure. Well, there are a variety of criteria that are being used to help guide us in determining when we should open up and how aggressive we should be with opening up. Um, Some of the criteria that we were looking at include whether or not the cases are flat or decreasing, what the hospital capacity is like, that is, do we have enough hospital beds in case there is a surge, how much testing we're doing, how much tracing we're able to do, that is contact tracing, and how well prepared our hospitals are to supply PPE to our healthcare workers. When we look at the six Bay Area counties, we're doing really well in all six of them in terms of the number of cases being flat or slightly decreasing. In terms of the hospitals, 
We are also doing very well in terms of the, the counts in the hospitals of patients with COVID are flat and in some cases decreasing. The capacity in the hospitals for a surge is there. So those criteria are met by all six counties. But when we look at the testing, tracing, and PPE, we're not doing nearly as well. We're behind the goal of testing, which is about 200 tests per 100,000 population each day. In Alameda County, we're now at around 60 tests per day. And in Contra Costa, we're around 50. These numbers remain below the goals in all the counties. In terms of tracing, um, none of the counties have the number of tracers, contact tracers that we need. Uh, San Francisco is doing the best. Uh, there's an aggressive program here in the Bay Area now to train tracers, but we're below where we need to be in all six counties. And also a 30-day supply of PPE. We don't have that in any of our counties. So we're about, if we look at these criteria, and I've listed six really, we're uh, halfway there with um, some of them. We're, not, we're all the way there in three of them. So we're getting there, but not where we need to be. Hmm. All right. So that gives a good picture of where we're at at the local level here in the Bay Area. Dr. Amesh Adalja, again, with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. What is it looking like nationally? Are, are other regions around the country on a similar track to the Bay Area, or is it a little bit more patchy than that? It's definitely patchy. You have to remember that this is a heterogeneous outbreak and it's not synchronous. So some states and even different parts of states are on different time clocks for this outbreak. And they all have different resources in terms of hospital bed capacity, PPE, diagnostic testing, and health department's ability to contact trace. So what you'll likely see is varying degrees of opening across the country, depending upon some of those metrics being met differently on different time on different time scales in different parts of a state. And I think that's what we're going to expect because it isn't something that's uniform and this outbreak has hit different parts of the country in different ways. And uh, sticking with you, Dr. Adalja, we have had uh, two months now to get prepared for this reopening. And it seems like some of these efforts, uh, testing and tracing in particular, uh, in, in a lot of cases are only getting stepped up now. Are, should we be surprised that we haven't made more progress at this point? Health departments tend to be chronically under-resourced and not prioritized by local governments. So it's not surprising that they're now scrambling to get enough contact tracers in place. But this is something that we should have been doing earlier as we thought about this infection and how we were going to manage it in the next phase of the pandemic. This is one of the highest priority actions because the goal will be to keep the number of cases to a level that's manageable by our healthcare system. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by having a health department that's empowered to do contact tracing. So this should be one of the major priorities that would have been identified early on and and really scaled up ahead of time. So we aren't waiting for this to be the last piece of the puzzle. Uh, but it's unfortunate that this is often what happens with health departments, that they're the, the kind of the lowest on the totem pole and often don't get the resources they need until it becomes uh, critical. Do you think that the federal, the national support has been there for these local agencies or have they been mostly fending for themselves? They've mostly been fending for themselves with assistance from the state governments. There hasn't been very strong federal leadership in this outbreak from the beginning. And I do think that we've suffered because of it. And that's why you see this patchwork, why you see states coming up with their own guidance and why local health departments are now scrambling to get contact tracers in place. Hmm. And Dr. Schwartzberg with UC Berkeley, 
given where we are at, so it sounds like, like you said, on some of the counts we're where we want to be, on other counts we're about halfway to where we want to be. How much does that halfway to where we want to be with the testing and the tracing, how much safety does that actually buy us as we reopen? Is it better than nothing? Does it secure us some level of safety as we begin to see more people go out into public and potentially become vectors for the spread of this thing? Well, sure. It, it, it gives us some degree of safety. It's better than nothing. But should we really be talking about with our healthcare workers and the health of our population and the ability to care for them, should we really be talking about, well, it's better than nothing. Um, it is, uh, frankly, um, as we just heard nationally, it's, it's really a tragedy that this country does not have and has not had in this entire pandemic adequate testing, adequate um, contact tracers, adequate PPE. Um, it, it, um, frankly, it just breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to return to that issue of why it has been so difficult to move faster on all this in just a second. Real quick, for anyone who's just joining us, I want to remind you that this is KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. Today on the program, well, we've endured the pain of lockdown, but... Are we any safer now that we're reopening? We get the view from Dr. John Swartzberg, Emeritus Professor with UC Berkeley's Division of Infectious Disease, as well as Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Swartzberg, so on that question of why it has been so difficult to ramp this up, I had on the program two weeks ago uh, Dr. George Rutherford with UCSF, and he is, of course, leading a number of efforts. Uh, importantly, he's leading the effort to train a lot more contact tracers for the Bay Area and for the state more widely. And, you know, you, you, you talk to the folks that are working on this and they are clearly dedicated, clearly motivated, putting a lot of their effort and uh, putting a lot of themselves into making this happen. So where is the disconnect, given that there are so many dedicated people here in the Bay Area that have been focusing on this and trying to make this happen for so long? Why? What, 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 it's, it's just hard for the lay public, such as myself, to understand how it is that coming out of the, just beginning to reopen right now, we knew that we need needed these contact tracers. How are we at, you know, in Santa Clara County, for example, just several dozen contact tracers when they say they need about a thousand? Right. Well, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Rutherford's work, he's done an outstanding job in terms of getting our contact, getting people trained for contract as contact tracers. Um, and he's just symbolic of all the just fabulous people in public health and in medicine who are doing the best that they can with this pandemic. The, the root problem, as Dr. Daja mentioned earlier in our show, the root problem is that there has been a chronic underfunding of public health for decades in this country. And while we have fabulous people at all levels of public health in the United States, they are very thin, completely under-resourced. And it's not a problem that can be resolved uh, after decades of underfunding. It can't be resolved in five months. There, therein lies the root problem. And another big problem with um, getting things done in a coordinated fashion, as opposed to the piecemeal fashion that Dr. Daja was referring to, is that the political process of handling this has been bungled terribly. And that the institutions that need to be coordinating 
the pandemic efforts have been politicized. And I'm specifically referring to the CDC and the FDA. Between the underfunding and the politicization of the these organizations, um, we've and the lack of coordination from the White House, um, this has all resulted in the problems that we're seeing today. Hmm. Dr. Schwartzberg, then, in your view, with the two months that we've been on lockdown so far, would it have been possible to uh, perhaps meet more of these goals than we have? Well, given where we started, which was at a very, very low point, and given the um, uh, the lack of appreciation on a national level for the problem that we were facing in the midst of us facing it, um, I think we've done a good job doing the best that we can. And we're seeing that, for example, in what happened in the Bay Area. Um, we were blessed with six county health officers in the Bay Area who had the foresight and ability to guide us through this pandemic. And as I think most of our listeners know, the Bay Area was the first large metropolitan area in the United States to enter to uh, enforce sheltering in place. And we are now reaping the fruits of that in terms of the fact that we have plenty of hospital capacities that we have flattened or at least decreasing the curve, um, that we have made tremendous progress uh, in that regard. Um, but that's that should have been done throughout the United States. Why should it have been just done with the health officers here in the six Bay Area counties? And that's, I think, the big problem that we're facing. Dr. Uh, Amesh Adalja, once again with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, what's your view on the role of uh, our political system in addressing these issues? Could, if, if, if we had seen more action earlier on, if we had seen a more cohesive approach, uh, do you think that we could have come further during the two months that we've been on lockdown to meet some of these goals? Definitely. And I think it is even broader than that. When this virus was identified in China, around December 31st, and we soon found out that this was spreading efficiently from person to person via the respiratory route. We really needed to, in January, start getting the country ready. That meant scaling up diagnostic testing, empowering our public health agencies, getting hospitals ready in terms of surge capacity, personal protective equipment, mechanical ventilators, so that when we started to get cases, which were going to be inevitable with a type of virus like that, we would be able to do contact tracing, diagnostic testing, and we would have much more precision-guided tools rather than blunt tools like shutdowns and shelter-in-place orders. The fact that we had to go that route is because there was so much failure in January, in February, in half of March, basically, uh, that put us in a position where we were only left with very, very blunt tools and no federal leadership. And, and I think that in this period that we've been in the shutdowns, yes, we, we should have been preparing for reopening very early, thinking about how to get enough contact tracers in place, make sure that our diagnostic testing was, is, was it adequate, trying to really think about how we could get everything in place as we reopen. And I think the story of this pandemic is going to be really the story of multiple failures that were really foreseeable and completely preventable and didn't have to be this way. And I think that's the, the most frustrating part of this pandemic response. And at the national level, what do you think that that means in terms of the level of risk that we are going to face 
uh, as we begin to reopen, the fact that we don't have some of this infrastructure that we had hoped for online? Some places are going to be okay because they have more hospital capacity, they have less population density, they were spared and they've taken the time to prepare. And, and it's not going to be that every place will be like New York City. Not everything is extrapolable, but there are going to be hot spots that surge back up. And we're already seeing that, for example, in Montgomery, Alabama, where there are issues with ICU bed capacity. So it just makes reopening much more hard, much trickier, and, and much more likely to result in hospitals getting inundated again if you don't have the appropriate infrastructure in place to do it. So you'll end up having to go slower. The public will have less confidence in going out and doing their daily life because they're worried about what might happen. So in general, to make the, us get closer, some semblance of normalcy, there has to be adequate public health capacity to deal with the increased number of cases that we're going to get. Because there's not a question about increased number of cases or, or people getting hospitalized or even people dying because the virus didn't change biologically. It's out there. We have to find a way to reduce the harm that this virus causes. And the only way we can do that is by having well-resourced health departments that can do contact tracing. Dr. Schwartzberg, I, I feel like we, as we reopen, there is a general sense of celebration and a general sense that we beat this thing, we've turned the corner, uh, happy days are here again. But as we're hearing, uh, the virus is still out there. The danger is still out there, is out there as well. What would you hope that the general public here in the Bay Area keeps in mind as the reopening process begins to gather pace? What I'd like people to think about is the question as to what really has changed. Maybe 3%, maybe as high as 5% of the population in the United States has been infected with this virus. That means that somewhere between 95% and 97% of the population is still susceptible to getting infected with this virus. So from that perspective, nothing has changed. From the perspective of the virus, nothing has changed. It hasn't mutated significantly in any way that is changing its ability to transmit or its virulence. So the virus hasn't changed and we still have a almost completely susceptible population. So when you think about it that way, if we go back to behaving like we did before COVID, if we do that, we're gonna see the same thing happen that just happened. Yeah, uh, important, important words to uh, keep in mind as uh, the reopening continues. Real quick, one more time, I want to remind our listeners, this is KCBS In-Depth. Today, as the lockdown begins to loosen, we consider what it has managed to achieve. Joining us for that conversation, we have on now Dr. John Swartzberg, Emeritus Professor with UC Berkeley's Division of Infectious Disease, as well as Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. So, Dr. Swartzberg, one of the real challenges facing California is this measure that we call the transmission rate. That is, uh, how many people are getting infected from any one person who is infected from COVID-19. I think that the hope of a lot of health officials before the lockdown began is that this lockdown would not only stop the spread uh, or, or slow the spread, but bring the, the rate of transmission so low that by the time we came out, we would just have a handful of cases to deal with. It, that would make our testing and tracing job a lot easier because obviously it's easier to trace a handful of cases than to trace thousands of cases. Unfortunately, in California, that does not seem to be the case. It seems like our transmission rates, while they have gone down a lot, they are not we are not seeing exponential decline like we had hoped for. Why, why is that? Why have we struggled to get the transmission rates as low as we would have wanted to? 
Well, if, if people sheltered in place, they would not get infected. So we know how to drive that number down that you're talking about. This is the famous R naught that people talk about. We know how to drive that number down by sheltering in place, but we obviously can't continue to shelter in place and have a, an economy because of the way our economy is structured. Um, so people wind up having to go back to work. As a matter of fact, people wind up being forced to go back to work. So they are forced not to be able to shelter in place and protect themselves. We, we see that people are going to continue to get infected. Um, and then as we let people, more and more people out to work, of course, we're going to see more and more people infected. So that's what's keeping this reproductive number, this R naught, higher than we'd like to see. Now, the numbers are spotty. For example, in Alameda County, the R naught number is 0.9, which means that we are somewhat flattening the curve there. One person will infect 0.9 people. But in other parts of California, particularly in Los Angeles area, we're seeing the R naught above one, which means that one person will affect, infect more than one person. So it remains spotty and we need to drive that number much further down. And unfortunately, we're driving, we're trying to drive it down at the same time we're putting people at risk for getting infected. Mm. Turning things over to Dr. Amesh Adalja. So obviously people are extremely frustrated with the lockdowns at this point. We've seen protests here in the Bay Area all across the country, people that want to get back out, want to restart their businesses. What at this point is continued lockdown buying us in terms of more time to build up some of these resources we're talking about or putting things off? What 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 is the case for continued lockdown at this point? It's all going to depend upon the region you're talking about. So in some places, there might not be much benefit because the r not has been bent down enough. Hospital capacity has been augmented. There's not an issue with personal protective equipment and health departments have started to um, increase their staffing to be able to do contact tracing. So there, that's where you're seeing states starting to lift things and, and move forward. So it all depends upon where you're going. I think it's important to remember that this isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all type of uh, decision for the, the country, that different places are at different time points in their epidemic curve. And you're going to see things open up in one part of a state and maybe not in another part of the state. So the the shutdowns are, are loosening because they are, they are achieving certain metrics. And remember that social distancing was really about hospital capacity, making sure that the hospitals didn't get inundated with the number of cases that they could not handle and they had to shift their standard of care and go into crisis. And that's largely been avoided in most places. And that's why you're starting to see how can we do this safely? How can we lift social distancing in a way that doesn't increase the number of cases at a pace that's unmanageable? And that's where you have to make these decisions on what what social distancing measures are most impactful, which ones probably aren't adding that much. And that's very hard. These aren't going to be easy black and white decisions. And there is going to have to be a balance because we were definitely worried during the early parts of these shutdowns about hospitals ceasing operations for things that were scheduled, like cancer screenings, colonoscopy screenings, cervical cancer screenings, mammograms, all of that is going to add up eventually. So you do have to have this type of balance, but it's not a hard balance to strike, and it's going to be different depending upon where you're sitting in the country. 
And what's your sense of how well we are striking it at this point? Uh, Obviously, like you suggested, some states are going significantly more quickly than others. There's uh, Georgia that's that's moving ahead. And then here in Santa Clara County, we're being quite cautious. So what's what's your sense of how well we're striking that balance? It's definitely mixed. And I would looking at Georgia, Georgia's Georgia went early. And so far, they haven't had a problem with hospital capacity, which is good and reassuring because they did go ahead of the gating criteria. And that, that can be a little bit uh, dangerous because of you, you, you don't know where you are in your epidemic curve and you may end up getting inundated in your hospitals. And then we're seeing another example in Alabama, which we mentioned earlier, that Montgomery, Alabama is in a little bit of a trouble with their ICU bed capacity. So I do think it's still mixed. Um, And the point has to be that you have to have some science-driven way of going forward and understanding what metrics you need to look at to make sure that you're okay as you continue to successively reopen parts of your economy. And and that's the lesson that we have to draw from this. And I think it's probably not the best to shame different states for doing that, but actually to learn from their mistakes and learn from their successes and try and come up with the best way to do this as we go forward, because this is going to be with us until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Well, we just have uh, two minutes left. And uh, before we go, I just want to put the same question to both of you. What, in your view, is going to be the most important lasting legacy of this lockdown, either positive or negative? What what do you think is really going to be the, the biggest impact of the last two months of very difficult work that we've all put into bending the curve? Dr. Schwartzberg, what's your view on that? Well, my hope that the lasting legacy from this pandemic will be the recognition that there's going to be a COVID 23, a COVID-26, a COVID-33, and so on, that we're going to have recurrent pandemics. There's no question about that. We've already had several in this century. So my hope is that we will finally learn how important public health is and how it's a resource that we have to keep well-funded and well-developed. We have to look at, we, we, the United States has a standing army and we're not fighting much in the terms in terms of war right now, but we choose to have a standing army for protection in the future. We need to have a standing army of public health professionals prepared to take on these future pandemics. Mm. And uh, Dr. Adalja, your view on the lasting impact of the lockdown? I agree with what was was said earlier that this is exactly the the fact that we're everyone in this country has been touched by this pandemic. And now hopefully they will draw the lesson that pandemic preparedness is paramount, that it's important, that it should be prioritized, that it shouldn't fall into this cycle of panic and neglect, which we've seen after anthrax, after H1N1, after Zika, after Ebola, after bird flu. It happens over and over again. When things recede from the headlines, people stop thinking about it. And we need to fortify our defenses against pandemics because they're not going anywhere. They likely will become more frequent as the world is more connected, more megacities rise. And, and we need to realize that it's so much easier and more efficient and cheaper to be able to do this ahead of time, to prepare ahead of time than what we're facing now with trillions and trillions of dollars of economic losses. This is something that we need to pay for and fund the way we fund national defense because pandemics do impact national security and they need to be prioritized in that manner. And it's important for the Americans, Americans to realize that these lockdowns were only because we were so poorly prepared and we were the most prepared country in the world. So I hope people really start to think about the importance of pandemic preparedness after these uh, shutdowns and lockdowns start to lift. All right. Well, an important view looking forward, but we're going to have to leave it there. We have been speaking today to Dr. John Swartzberg, Emeritus Professor with UC Berkeley's Division of Infectious Disease. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Swartzberg, for joining us once again. 
Thank you very much. Also joined by Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Thank you as well. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.